Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. My name is David Young, and I'm a senior attorney. And with me today is Jane Willis, a partner in Ropes and Gray's Antitrust Group. Together, we represent clients in a range of industries, including healthcare, life sciences, and antitrust litigation, counseling, and transactions. This is the sixth and final installment of Ropes and Gray's podcast series, analyzing current and proposed efforts by states to increase scrutiny of healthcare transactions. Today, we're going to discuss the intersection between federal antitrust enforcement in the healthcare space and recent trends at the state level. This includes an increased focus on for-profit and private equity-backed entities, as well as a wider focus on a broad set of competition and other considerations. We'll also discuss the degree to which these review processes may burden otherwise praiseworthy efforts to control the costs of healthcare, including efforts to improve care coordination and implement value-based care. Jane, in prior podcasts, Ropes and Gray attorneys have discussed various proposed state regulatory efforts and the potential implications for healthcare transactions in the industry. I want to take a step back for a moment and talk about the rationale for these broader state reviews. What are state legislators and regulators trying to accomplish? Well, you know, a recurring theme in some of this new legislation is that it fills a, a perceived regulatory gap by targeting transactions involving for-profit entities. You know, take New York, for example. New York already has a regulatory regime that addresses nonprofits and licensed entities like hospitals. But the newly enacted legislation is focused on for-profit transactions, either because there's a view that, you know, for-profit was getting a free pass and wasn't subject to the existing regulatory framework, or there's a belief that there's something inherently inimical about for-profit healthcare, or both. It is interesting that the nonprofit healthcare sector was, until now, subject to more scrutiny than for-profit peers. And I think there's also an underlying concern here that in certain transactions, and in particular transactions that do not meet the, the Hart-Scott-Rodino reportability threshold, which today is about $111 million, that those sorts of transactions are evading federal antitrust scrutiny. And whether that's because different antitrust priorities are there or just resource constraints. And these new state legislative efforts seem to step into that perceived gap in federal enforcement and give those state attorney generals or other agencies the authority to review and potentially block uh, problematic transactions or otherwise impose conditions. You know, that's right. They are targeting smaller transactions. Um, and, and, you know, in addition, we're seeing some states requiring transacting parties to go under review, um, even where the merging parties have, you know, very small holdings in that state where there's basically no overlap. So, you know, we've seen multi-billion dollar transactions where just a handful of physician offices were located in Oregon, and that still required review by the Oregon Health Authority, and, and they held up that transaction for a while. So that's what a dynamic is worrying also, um, to the extent that it becomes more common across the country. So not only are the states targeting smaller transactions that don't reach the HSR threshold, but targeting transactions where they have very little um, intersection um, with, with, the, with the larger companies. Other than covering smaller value transactions, what do you think are some of the other key differences uh, between state review and, and traditional federal antitrust review? The state reviews, in theory, are different from the federal antitrust reviews in a few important ways. Um, and I say in theory because it's important to remember we do not yet have you know enough examples, enough precedent set of enforcement to, from which to draw conclusions about what what these state reviews are going to entail. Um, but one difference is that, you know, unlike the federal agencies, you know, some state agencies have the ability to unilaterally block or impose conditions on a transaction, you know, without even going to court. In California, for example, the attorney general has used his authority to approve nonprofit hospital transactions to impose conditions on several hospital mergers in, in recent years. 
Um, these conditions can be quite significant, you know, including limitations on hospitals' contracts with payers, um, capping commercial rates, capping increases. Um, these conditions can be imposed, again, without, um, without judicial review, without going to court. Uh, in contrast, the FTC needs to go to court unless the parties will, or will agree to a remedy. What about the concerns that state regulators are bringing to these transactions? You know, one common criticism of federal antitrust enforcement was that it had been overly focused on price competition and ignored broader concerns that might be relevant. That's right. You know, these newer state review processes often take into account, you know, a broader set of concerns, not just competition, but factors such as access uh, to healthcare and, fac and factors such as equity, you know, across populations. Okay. And so when it comes to remedies, for instance, what, what are state regulators seeking in terms of conditions on deals that they, they do let through? So like I said, you know, some of these states have unilateral authority, like the Oregon Health Authority and can unilaterally um, disapprove of a transaction or, you know, can require that the transaction meet conditions as well as have, you know, annual reports over a period of years. So, so those remedies can be pretty onerous. For the state regulatory reviews, there's really a wide range of remedies that could happen. You know, places like Oregon could disapprove of the transaction or, as we said, approve it with conditions, including reporting obligations for a period of years after the um, transaction closes. You know, in contrast, the federal antitrust agencies, um, they must challenge transactions in court, and it's really an up-down decision or maybe a divestiture. But the federal agencies generally don't impose conditions. Um, so under some of these new state laws, you know, there's really the possibility that they will um, hold up the transaction process both the diligence process as well as the regulatory approvals process. And so it creates a lot of uncertainty um, for our clients and for, for parties doing transactions when you have to look at all these state regimes, figure out how your transaction may overlap with these state regimes and how to plan uh, for um, you know successful regulatory approvals and closing. So the conditions that they're imposing, are are these jeopardizing the transactions themselves or are state regulators you know, aware of, of how parties might react and, and how it might affect the economics of the deal? I think it really depends on the regulator. I mean, certainly these types of reviews can jeopardize transactions or make it difficult for the transaction to achieve the very purpose for which it's being entered into. Certainly in one example in California, a transaction involved a troubled rural hospital and um, the attorney general tried to impose unilateral conditions on the um, buyer's ability to raise rates. As a result, the transaction fell through and the hospital went bankrupt. So that's a situation where I don't think the regulator necessarily understood the um, objectives of the transaction and how important it was to the parties. On the substance of the reviews, you know, the state laws that have been proposed or enacted contemplate this broad range of criteria that state agencies consider, not all of which are directly related to competition. What are your views on those criteria and how parties can consider them? Yeah, well, the federal antitrust laws, which I'm a bit partial to, you know, focus solely on competition. That's avoiding, you know, adverse effects or anti-competitive effects. In contrast, these state laws are looking at a wide variety of factors. And New York, for example, has five factors it focuses on cost, access, equity, quality and competition. So by focusing on factors other than competition, it does cre create uncertainty um, and broadens the review. I, I do want to step back and remind our listeners that under federal antitrust law, um, the focus is on competition, including overlaps between actual and potential competitors. 
And that's either horizontal overlaps that reduce competition, raise market share, or vertical relationships that cause foreclosure and reduce competition by foreclosing access to a competitor to be able to get to the market and compete. And just for our listeners' benefits, can you just give some basic examples of what horizontal and vertical overlaps might look like? Sure. A simple example of a horizontal overlap is if, for example, there's two practices, physician practices in the same specialty in the same city, and they do a transaction. You know, that raises a potentially significant antitrust issue to the extent that their market share might be higher and they might be able to get higher rates. Um, Importantly, you know, for a horizontal overlap, it must exist both as to the geography and as to the service line. Uh, An example of a vertical transaction causing foreclosure would be, for example, if the largest commercial payer in uh, a region acquired the largest health system in the region. So the high market share at both the payer level and the hospital level could create foreclosure and make it harder for other insurers or other hospitals to compete. Turning back to the the state reviews, you know, what is your view uh, of what's driving these broader state reviews and, and what are the pitfalls to this sort of broader uh, approach that they have to evaluating transactions? These states are clearly signaling a broader agenda and opening themselves up to, or or even welcoming, a broader set of narratives and special interests. Whether it's an animus towards private equity or a concern about unionized workers, or there may be other issues relating to access um, that get addressed in the context of these reviews, such as, you know, access to reproductive services or access for non-English speaking patients. And these state reviews can address those types of issues as well. But by focusing on factors other than competition, you know, states adopting these regimes may end up spending a lot of time and effort um, on transactions that don't pose any conceivable antitrust concern. Do you think the states with these review regimes are going to be more aggressive than the federal antitrust agencies? Not necessarily, you know, because I would say that federal antitrust agencies are aggressive in different ways. You know, the current Federal Trade Commission is concerned about roll-up transactions by private equity sponsors or their portfolio companies. And there's a concern that these transactions are generally under the HSR threshold, which makes them hard for the federal antitrust agencies to detect. And the FTC chair, for example, has been quite vocal about the impact of private equity on healthcare. And recent state regimes have picked up on this as well. And, you know, an earlier version of the New York legislation, you know, specifically referenced the proliferation of investor-backed uh, transactions in, in the physician space. Another concern of the FTC currently is the impact of transactions on labor markets, particularly for nurses. You know, we saw that concern on display um, in connection with the Rhode Island transaction last year that was abandoned after it was challenged. Um, there was a concern by a couple of the commissioners that not only was a transaction going to increase costs for patients, but could have an impact on nurse wages. Another you know, third area where the FTC is more aggressive is in pursuing cross-market antitrust theories. That's the idea that um, a transaction involving entities that even if they're pretty far away from one another could result in an anti-competitive effect and raise prices for patients. What about the Department of Justice, uh, the other antitrust agency at the federal level? Are they involved in healthcare at all in, in mergers or conduct? So the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, of course, is the other federal antitrust agency, and um, they are focused on healthcare. Uh, more of a focus, though, on insurers, national insurers such as United. Um, and there's been some inquiry into whether national insurers, by acquiring technologies and capabilities, are able to, you know, increase their power and cause a, an adverse effect on competition. 
Um, the DOJ is also focused on contracting practices in the healthcare markets. Um, they're concerned about anti-steering provisions and anti-tiering provisions and contracts between healthcare providers and, and payers. Um, so those are some of the concerns that the DOJ is focused on. Um, different than the FTC, but we're also seeing uh, more aggressive enforcement by the DOJ as well. Turning to, to thinking about some of the, the other major trends in healthcare have been efforts to control the cost of healthcare, such as value-based contracting or digital health transformations. Those are, of course, critical to the healthcare industry um, and aimed at controlling costs, but they're often reliant on scale of a provider or coordination between healthcare providers. And those two things, scale and coordination, appear to be disfavored by some of these new state regimes and, and the federal antitrust agencies, even if they are necessary for value-based health initiatives. You know, looking at these new state regimes and, and past federal experience, is there a way for providers to thread the needle and, and get these sorts of cost-saving healthcare initiatives done while at the same time complying with all of these regulatory efforts? David, you know, I do think there is because I do think that care coordination is unambiguously a good thing. You know, for decades now, um, it's been understood uh, by the federal antitrust agencies that care coordination is helpful. You know, for example, it's pretty commonplace to, to think about a patient's primary care physician, that that primary care physician would refer patients to specialist physicians and coordinate with those specialists as necessary. Same thing with electronic medical record systems. Those have been generally considered to be a positive and to, to promote care coordination. Now, of course, today, care coordination is even more sophisticated. It's not only between physicians, but between hospitals, skilled nursing, rehab, home health, the whole continuum of care. And care coordination also is essential to value-based care, um, efforts to have payment methodologies that are different than fee-for-service, such as paying based on the entire course of treatment or the episode of care or based on outcomes. So are you saying that antitrust law does take a favorable view of care coordination? I am, because I think antitrust law, you know, generally and rightfully has been focused on overlaps in the same or similar service lines in, in the same geographies, such as a combination of the same types of healthcare care providers. Um, and so, you know, when we think about care coordination and value-based care, if the focus of the overlap is across different specialties, different areas of the healthcare continuum, and across different geographies, that's a way to achieve scale um, that can benefit patients. And so antitrust law, you know, generally, I would say, has allowed the formation of multi-specialty physician groups. It's allowed hospitals to employ physicians and provide outpatient services. And it's allowed the creation of integrated healthcare delivery systems, the large hospital systems that we see today. So what I think you are saying is that there is scale that is permissible under the antitrust laws and promotes value-based care. But scale that results in market power, high market share in the same service and the same geography is generally rejected, even if it would enable value-based care arrangements. Yeah, I agree with that. So that has been the agency's historical approach to the antitrust laws. Isn't it the case, though, that under the current administration, we are seeing a shift? We are. We are seeing that federal agencies become more aggressive in ways that might limit, you know, praiseworthy efforts to create cost efficiencies and engage in value-based care. You know, that an animosity to private equity roll-ups of physician practices or to MSO arrangements, you know, that's intention with legitimate value-based care, you know, to the extent that it's not rooted in an overlap analysis, but it's based on a bias against, for example, private equity. And the FTC's new focus on labor markets and cross-market effects, um, those also may be odds with pro-competitive efforts, you know, because 
integrated healthcare delivery systems can obtain cost efficiencies, including the labor markets that would benefit patients. What about the states? Well, certainly, as we've been discussing, the states seem to be focused on things that that could indeed Im- impede value-based care. You know, we've already discussed that the state regimes may catch in their net transactions that don't reduce competition or transactions that don't even have much intersection with the state at all. Um, and that will make it harder to do transactions and may slow down the path from signing to closing and may even require conditions. In addition, you know, to send that some of the review criteria is vague um, or broad at the state level. Um, that's that's going to create more uncertainty. So, Jane, it sounds like the increasing headwinds that transactions are facing in the federal HSR process, while directionally similar, are also quite different from those in the state review processes, which have this broader scope and pose more risks for healthcare transactions generally and value-based care efforts in particular. I think that's right, at least in theory. You know, in practice, a lot is going to depend on the regulations still under development that define the scope of these state reviews how the reviewing agencies choose to exercise the authority, and and the resulting outcomes. Well, we'll keep an eye on those developments. Thanks for the conversation, Jane. And if those listening would like more information on this topic, please don't hesitate to contact either one of us or visit the Healthcare Group's Resource Center, Navigating Emerging State Regulation of Healthcare Transactions. You can also subscribe and listen to other Ropes and Gray podcasts wherever you regularly listen to your podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.